quite interested in this kind of gulf between the sort of sense of intimacy that people all over the world felt towards Chaplin or the Tramp and that immediate kind of intimacy that he strikes up with you as an audience when he looks looks at you from across the screen, you know, that feeling that um, he's looking straight at you and that he's kind of confiding in you or, or flirting with you. The gulf between that and the sense of, of, of did anyone really feel that they, they know him? Did he let anyone in? Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Getting to know two giants of the silent screen. First, I talked to James Spinney, one of the makers of the new documentary, The Real Charlie Chaplin. Then Serge Bromberg returns to tell us about the subject of a massive restoration project out now, the director Julien de Vivier. Come with Nitrateville Radio to the Casbah. And if that doesn't work for you, don't be in a panic. You can at least subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. When the first time I went to the Keystone, I was terribly nervous. I was 24, but I looked about 18. Could I ask you to tell me? I've read several versions of it now. That moment when you created the tram outfit. Well, my version, I assure you, is the most authentic one. <laughs> Here's something you've probably never heard before. The voice of Charlie Chaplin, not playing a role, but being interviewed for Life magazine in 1966. Then again, maybe being the greatest comedian of all time, and arguably the most recognizable man on the planet, was a role for him by then. But who was Charlie Chaplin, behind the costume and the fame and the scandals? That question is explored in a new documentary called The Real Charlie Chaplin, by directors Peter Middleton and James Spinney, now playing on Showtime. It's built on some rare recordings they've uncovered, and ingeniously bring back to life, often in the original locations where the recordings took place. I spoke to James Spinney about the film from London, and started by asking, if you call something the real Charlie Chaplin, you must think that you're going to find something that is the real Charlie Chaplin. So what were you looking for? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Um, I think for us, it became clear very quickly that the idea of finding one Charlie Chaplin was sort of an impossible task in some ways. Like the, the, the more deeply we looked into his life, into his work, the more versions of Chaplin we, we kept finding, which is why I think we were interested in that title as a kind of a sort of provocation, but also quite a playful thing because, you know, we start the film with this... Um, with this sort of burst of, cha of Charlie mania or uh, Chaplinitis, as it was called, um, this kind of wave of, um, of of mass hysteria almost that seemed to be building up around Chaplin in, uh, in the 1910s. 
Um, and so the beginning of the film starts off with all of these imitators and um, impersonators and imposters. Um, and that seemed to us like quite an interesting sort of analogy for Chaplin himself in that um, he seemed to be this, he's someone who was known all across the world by this very simple outline, but he's someone who, um, who seems to be kind of unknowable in some ways, you know, as a, as, as a person. It seemed um, the people who knew him best said that he was always acting, he was always performing, he was always on show. Um, that, those are actually the, the uh, that's a quote from Virginia Cheryl, actually, who was in City Lights. Um, but even his daughter, Jane, said that, you know, she grew up with the icon, but she had no idea who the man was. So we're quite interested in this kind of gulf between the sort of sense of intimacy that people all over the world felt towards Chaplin or the Tramp. And, and that question of is it Chaplin or the Tramp is, is always such an interesting one. Um, this gulf between that immediate kind of intimacy that he strikes up with you as an audience when he looks looks at you from across the screen, you know, that feeling that um, he's looking straight at you and that he's kind of confiding in you or, or flirting with you or... or um, um, the gulf between that and the sense of, of, of did anyone really feel that they, they know him? Did he let anyone in? Um, that, that kind of was the sort of, I think, the, the big puzzle of the film for us and why we gave it that title. Well, you know, it's funny. I've been watching hours and hours of the Beatles like everyone else in the world at the moment. And <laughs> when when you see them cross in front of a camera and they'll just like turn and look at the camera and make a little face. I mean, I immediately thought of, you know, kid auto races at Venice. It's that instinctive sense that there's people on the other side who will, that you are in some sense making contact with. And, you know, it's interesting that probably uh, the five most famous people of the 20th century all shared that, that idea of the person on the other side of the camera absolutely and yeah like you i've also been um very much enjoying the uh the, the get the full uh, eight hours of get back um which i watched in like one weekend and loved um and yeah funnily enough when i said charlie mania i actually just the beatles popped into my head because it seems like you know that type of fame is 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 equivalent there are all sorts of other strange equivalents like you know Chaplin also said, um, I'm, I'm famous in parts of the world that have never heard of Jesus Christ. And that yeah. got into all sorts of trouble <laughs> long before John Lennon did. Yeah. Gee, who does <laughs> um, that yeah, remind you of? Say, that kind of, um, that rapport with the camera, that kind of, um, which you see even in Chaplin's home movies, you know, whenever there's a camera on him, he'll kind of play up to it, which is, um, which of course is used so effectively. And, and it's, it's funny, as you say, that even in Kid Auto Races, the first, um, if his films to be released, even if it wasn't the first one he made, um, that he so instinctively, apparently he had that idea up his sleeve, even when they were when they were touring with Carno, um, the idea of someone showing off to the camera, and yet it becomes kind of part of of the Tramp character, even when when uh, it, it's no longer just a part of a, a gag. You know, in Kidoto Races, it's it's the central gag of the film, but for the rest of uh, his career as the Tramp, Chaplin just uses it for for kind of a little moment of pause or intimacy or kind of, you know, he'll be kind of appealing to the audience or sort of, uh, or kind of there'll be a moment of relief or, go, oh God, can you believe this or whatever? Um, and you do feel like um, like he's looking directly at you. And um, and it's funny that that's a rule that, you know, generally, less than silence than them, I guess Buster Keaton's doing it a lot, but, but you know, it's, it's come to be seen as a bit of a rule that it's, it's the big no-no. You know, you, you should never look at the camera. Uh, you should never break the fourth wall, but it kind of... Um, but people all over the world felt that they were looking at him. And, um, 
And it was interesting to us that sense that, you know, when he steps onto screen in 1914, films are just beginning to spread across continents. And, um, and by 1916, he is very much not only the most famous person in the world, but famous in a way that hadn't been possible before um, before then, because, you know, films were just reaching that level of um, distribution and films were cheap. So you had people from all walks of life sitting side by side in cinemas across the world um, watching watching his films. And, and also this idea that I think the tramp kind of becomes an emblem of that ideal of silent cinema to transcend language and borders. You know, it, I think at the time it was referred to as visual Esperanto um, for, that, <laughs> for that reason, because it, because it could uh, leap over language. And, 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 and the tramp was, um, was sort of emblematic of that really, because, you know, he had no name and he has no sort of real discernible, we don't really know where he's quite, where he's from or, and he's he's always drifting and um, outside of society and playing with identity and gender and sexuality and so you know he's he's this fluid character and so um, so yeah this sense that he's he's looking at you but also looking at people all across the world is 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 just central to the whole sort of um, excitement and enigma of, of Chapman I think. Now, when you started the project, what kind of footage that we weren't all familiar with did you expect to find yeah um that's a really interesting question um because there have been so many great films made about chaplin in the past and it's you know there have been so many deep dives into just into single films like in kevin brownlow's the tramp and the dictator for example or his unknown chaplain where he'll take a he'll spend a whole episode on the mutual period or something like that um you know and but I think we knew from early on that this film was going to be trying to tell the sweep of his life. And so it would be um, taking in a, you know, a, a vast body of work. And, and that's, I think, one of the challenges of making a film like this is this chapter makes so much good stuff that it's right. almost like <laughs> it presents you with this, uh, this problem of, 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 of what you have to exclude, which is kind of heartbreaking and was heartbreaking throughout the process. But yeah, we were aware that... Um, on some to some level we we were we were treading ground that had been that had been very thoroughly kind of churned over um and that huge discoveries had had already been made which is which is a blessed thing to to enter into really because you know especially because kevin brownlow um and david robinson amongst others glenn mitchell um were really welcoming to us and really supportive um you know they they opened up their archives to us we spent a long time in fact in kevin brownlow's um home like and he'd go off um disappear down into his um archive and, and pull out reels and we'd look at them on his steam back um so you know there was that sense of, of very much following in the footsteps of, of people who had who had done all this amazing research um which is a real gift um to be kind of entering it with with that in mind there's been 800 or so no, in fact david robinson said there have been 800 books written about chaplin but that was a long time ago so there must be many <laughs> hundreds more now um, and it was a huge thing to kind of uh, for us to ingest in in the early research period in terms of trying to get to know that kind of body of scholarship because you know we were we were fans of chaplin and and um and we'd seen lots of the films but we we hadn't taken such a deep dive that we that we needed to and that was essential to do and it's nice making a film like this because it is a bit of a passport you, you realize how lucky you are it's a passport into these extraordinary archives so you know the, the bfi welcomed us and and led us into the um the archive of rushes you know they have all the mutual rushes and lots of the rushes for the features that um kevin Brownlow had discovered in the in the 1980s with um 
with David Gill as well for the wonderful program, The Unknown Chaplain. Um, so, you know, we, we were kind of going, retreading those footsteps, but we were also hoping that there, were, that there would still be something that hadn't been found, you know, that we'd right. be able to <laughs> shed new light and that we'd be able to, you know, find new things. Um, and we, I mean, we spent a, a, a long period of the production or the, or the you know, pre-production, I suppose, putting out leads, um, fishing for things. Um, there were lots of tantalizing things, often things that related, I think, more to Chaplin's life, I think, than his work. You know, I think um, Kevin and David and Serge Bloomberg, of course, have done such a fantastic job in, in kind of assessing what's out there, what exists and what's out there in terms of um, in terms of Chaplin's films. But I think we had slightly more hope with other materials in terms of interviews and recordings and things like that. Um, in terms of interviews with Chaplin, um, obviously recording technology didn't really come into play for, for journalists for quite a while. Um, and so, and it wasn't really until um, until Chaplin was famous, you know, that we had any hope of finding an audio recording with him. But fortunately, and also he hated interviews. He, he didn't really, he didn't, he was insecure about how he came across and he didn't love the sound of his own voice, which I totally sympathize with. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we did come across very early on the reference to this, this long three-day interview that was done with him in the 1960s by Richard Merriman, which had been used in a couple of films, bits of it had been used, but everyone was very put off by the fact that, um, uh, that the recording quality was so bad um, of this interview because Richard Merriman was, didn't want to put Chaplin off knowing how self-conscious he was. So he, he sort of hid the tape recorder more so than than is in our dramatization of those scenes. He, um, because I should say, you know, in, in our film, we use those audio recordings, but we, um, we have actors playing Chaplin and, and Richard Merriman and Roddy McDowell, who took the photos. Um, and we restaged it in the, in the room that it took place in Chaplin's oh. um, living room in, in Switzerland, uh, in the Malmö de Bain. It's now a museum, and so it's been kind of um, put back to look as it did in the 1960s. So we were able to kind of restage that, that kind of encounter with Chaplin. Um, and intercut it with the photos that were taken on a day. Um, so, um, yeah, I think people have been put off by the fact that the audio quality was so poor. Um, Merriman had hidden the recorder, um, so it didn't sound very good. Um, and it took us, for a long time, we didn't know if, if we'd be able to use it. It took um, a lot of experimentation with kind of digital restoration using Isotope RX, amongst other things, to kind of peel away the, the layers of hum, the sort of hum on every part of the audio <laughs> spectrum. But we managed to um, sort of salvage Chaplin's voice, and suddenly there he was telling us his story, and um, which is something we, you know, we we really thought would be would, could become a central part of the film. And in fact, our early idea for the film was that um, it would be Chaplin in his own words almost throughout. But I think quickly we found that we needed to find other ways, and we also need to challenge Chaplin, and that we needed um, other voices in there. So um, so we kind of balanced it with other things. Um, but that was huge to hear Chaplin describing, for example, the moment he created the the tramp costume when he first assembled it um and saying you know his version of the story is the most authentic uh, which was a bit of a red rag to a bull for us because um, we were able then to offer up all of the well some actually not even all of them because there's so many accounts of people who right. saying that they got their first and that theirs was the tramp costume and um and to go on a bit of a wild goose chase in terms of uh, in terms of the elements of that costume so yeah that interview with him became um, a real sort of find and a, a real gold mine um, in terms of that. We know it's over 10 hours of it. Um, so we we took a deep dive into that. And then 
but we were always looking for other things and there were lots of tantalizing leads um for example there was a um, uh, the FBI did an interview with Chaplin in the uh, early 1950s before he before he was exiled from America, um, and, and Chaplin mentions that that was tape recorded, and so he spent ages with freedom information requests with the FBI trying to get hold of those tapes if they existed, um, but unfortunately we couldn't find them. Um, maybe someone will find them in the future. Um, there's all sorts of you know, tantalizing things that we didn't find, but we did find the recording of the 1947 Monsieur Vaudou press conference, which is a bit of a legendary event in, in Chaplin kind of history because it's his first film without the Tramp character. Um, it's uh, the first time he kind of faces the press um, since making this film where he's kind of laid down the, the character that everyone loves and he stands up and the majority of the questions aren't about the film at all. They're about his supposed communist um leanings uh and his communist um sort of support and it's a kind of this grilling um in fact Orson Welles described it as, as kind of a critical lynching of sorts um <laughs> and um and a, you know a fragment of that had, had survived we've heard a fragment um in in other films and other things and we tried to find it but it was just that like a, a one minute clip but we found the full 45 minute thing which had been recorded on on wire actually um and um, we traced it down to the, the granddaughter of the radio journalist who recorded it, had it in her in her garage in um, San Francisco. And wow. so that, again, was a huge discovery for us. Um, and there have been other things along the way, um, which I won't, I won't go into exhaustive detail, but those, those, um, those were the biggies, really, along with an interview with Chaplin's childhood friend, which plays another big part in the film. Yeah, no, I found that very touching. Um... Effie Wisdom, who Kevin Brownlow interviewed, I guess, when she was 92. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, some, something right, like yeah. that. And she's talking about them being, you know, children of poverty, you know, nearly a century before. And, I mean, it, it's like hearing, you know, Jesus Christ playmates talk about him as a kid. You know, uh, it's just – it feels yeah, so yeah. impossibly remote. And yet, uh, you know, it it was just – just another kid she knew uh, for her. And, you know, I found that really, that part was, was quite moving. See, I knew Charlie when I was five years old, and he was about seven. My aunt lived in Canada next to Mrs. Chapley and the two boys for the First World War, I'm talking about, before he went to America. That and, and the footage of him with his children in switzerland at the end you know and it, it's i could see that it could be a little exhausting to be his his child because he you know this dignified older man turns into charlie chaplin anytime a camera goes on absolutely yes um i'm so glad you picked out those two because those are for us are also some of the most moving parts um hearing effie wisdom talk about her old chum Charlie and also putting to rest like this big speculation of what he sounded like because you know in later life he has this very um you know elevated um sort of accent and tone of voice um but she's like oh no he used to talk like me common you know forget his h's um so you're kind of hearing the voice that Chaplin had in some ways um you're hearing her talk about South London in the 1890s um you know which which funnily enough it's 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 funny how Chaplin's life kind of maps onto film. Like, you know, we have a part of the film how where we 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 sort of say this is what films look like in in uh, 
1889, the year that Chaplin was born. And um, we use an Edison film there called Monkey Shines. And, you know, it looks kind of impressionistic to us at that point. It's sort of a swirl. It was kind of, there, were, there were some slightly more vivid. That's not the best film from 1889. But right. <laughs> it's, um, but it's certainly. Uh, um, and then, but then, you know, within a, within a few years in the 1890s, when Chaplin's growing up, um, there's footage of London from the 1890s. And then as he's traveling over to America, you know, you get these travelogue films being made. And so it is funny. And then as soon as, as soon as he's touring America, um, he's invited to make shorts, you know, with Max Sennett when he's just getting going. It's sort of funny how his life just kind of intersects these kind of, um, these sort of advances in film. But, um, but yeah, Effie is just, it was beautiful to us to hear because there's so little from his childhood in terms of photographs um or uh or, or material really that can that can really show the kind of life he lived so when we funny enough we read that transcript of, of kevin brown interviewing effie um before, long before we'd heard it but it was written in kind of almost like a dickens thing kind of in her <laughs> dialect um and the transcript was electrifying and we just thought oh, god if it sounds anything like as, as as good as it reads on the page this is just going to be like magnetic and it, it was she was it's just such electric company and such a character. And yeah, as you say, like um, he was just a kid. And funny enough, she she's sort of pitying him in uh, in in her childhood. She, you know, even though I didn't think she had um, a very affluent upbringing, she's like, oh my god, the rags those boys were wearing, like um, the 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 hunger they experienced. You know, she can tell that she felt really really sorry for, for Charlie in this attic room that um, that she talks about, which is the attic room, of course, that Chaplin recreates in his film The Kid. Um, where he sort of revisits the um, the moment that he's separated from from his own mother, uh, where Jackie Coogan kind of, as the kid, is has his arms outstretched, um, and 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 so Chaplin revisits those traumas that he experienced throughout his films, and um, and I think that's what makes them. You know, you can they have that crackle of um, of electricity that comes when with 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 I think you know these experiences being you know Jackie Coogan said that uh, Chaplin was crying when he directed that scene um, so he was really it's one of the extraordinary things I think about Chaplin is that even when he has this army of people at his disposal and this huge film studio he, he's he's still circling back to his um, to his most vulnerable sort of stages of his life. And then, yes, as you say, with um, with the family, you feel those waves of, um, I think, of trauma, kind of, to some degree, being um, being passed down the generations. Because I, I think, you know, he he Ch- Charlie barely Charlie <laughs> Chaplin barely knew his his father. Um, he he died when 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 Charlie Chaplin was um, Charlie Chaplin Jr. was was thirteen, and his mother was put into the asylum. Um, and he idolised his mother, but you know, um, I think. It's fair to say that he probably didn't have a huge amount to draw on in terms of um, in terms of in terms of his parenting, and I, I, I it's it's heartbreaking to hear um, some of the children talk about um, about their feelings of their yearning for intimacy with him. I think you know um, Michael and and Geraldine and Jane um, speak you know really movingly about about the desire to connect with him. I think and and quite how. Um, uh, and, and you see that in the home movies, I think the sense that yeah, that he, that he is always performing to some degree, and that um, uh, so we can never quite see him because he's so um, good at communing with the camera. I think um, we never really see any footage of him as he might have been. I think in um, in cl- behind closed doors, um, and and it seems like he was quite hard to uh, to find intimacy within those spaces. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you can just kind of see, like, oh, the camera's on and shutting them out at that moment uh, because that's, yeah. his, that's his closest relationship. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's funny, I mean, to some degree, Chaplin, you know, few people, you could say, have transmitted their personality or a version of their personality into into a machine and into <laughs> in, 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 a, in such a way that will outlast their their you know mortal life to the same degree as Chaplin. You know, we're still talking about him over a hundred years after he steps onto the screen, and and that connection that we talked about earlier is is so kind of strong and so vivid. So it's it's strange and interesting that he was able to do that with the camera um, after his sort of training of doing it with audiences in theatre. You know, um, with Fred Carno. Funnily enough, I'm talking to you from my home in South London, which is just two streets from where Chaplin trained with, uh, with Fred Carno um, and Stan Laurel as well. Um, well, I'm about uh, a mile so from the that's... SNA studio in Chicago, so. Wow. <laughs> wow. How about that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Fred Carno obviously had a huge influence on him. Stan Laurel said uh, that, that uh, he didn't teach us everything we knew, but he taught us most of it. And uh, there's one quote about Fercano about keeping it wistful. That was apparently his mantra, which obviously you see um, in, in the tramp so much. It's always playing on that. Um, but yeah, we're, so we're talking about, yeah. So I think, yeah, it, it's this sort of that communication with the camera, um, which he'd slightly learnt with, with Carno and then, and then took, to, took to film, which seems, yeah, so different to, uh, to how he must have been in real life. Well, that's what's so interesting you know the the bit about uh being wistful for the camera i mean from the first moments in the in the keystone films you know everybody else is simply a machine that hits other people with a brick or whatever and chaplin yeah. somehow makes us think about well what's he thinking what's he up to at this moment you know what's he going to do next absolutely yes that's always his advice to um to, uh, when he's when he's directing, supposedly, is don't um, make it too easy for people to know what's going on in your head. You know, keep them guessing. Keep and uh, but also keep inviting them into that thought process. You always see him, as you say, working out what to do with an object, or kind of thinking, <laughs> or sort of. Uh, he kind of yeah, it is a a kind of um, telepathy that he kind of creates at, at times, as well as, as as you say, as being massively unpredictable. Um, but he's um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to. It's, it's, it's always dangerous, I think, to sort of break down as well as to summarize. And um, because um, I feel like we're rather, you can be rather dancing about architecture in terms of breaking down um, what it is about him that's quite so extraordinary. Because it is partly like a magnetism thing as well, I think, isn't it? Like it's um, partly his, a, a, just this extraordinary like charisma that he has on screen um, that's forged through that eye contact that we talk about. Um, but yes, as you say, kind of... Um, keeping us guessing um, and keeping it wistful. Um, I was going to say, though, um, because I said which must have been very different to how he was in real life, but um, I should also add that, like, you know, he was this electrifying presence at parties and um, and kind of... He, and, and I think he, he felt this sense that he had, to be, he had to be performing all the time. A lot of people said that. There was almost this... That it was incredibly um, good fun to be with him because he'd be putting on these performances. Um, but I think that's part of what we were talking about earlier with the home movies in the sense that he's, that he's, he's giving a performance. And, and, and so I think he was very good value, um, but there was always a sense of like that you were getting a performance, I think, right. rather than uh, perhaps 
um, him becoming vulnerable to you. Um, yeah, like and, you, and you often wonder, you know, is that exhausting in real life? I mean, they think about, you know, more modern day people like Mel Brooks or Robin Williams, who were always thought to be on, you know, would they yeah. drive you nuts within a week <laughs> is kind of the question I have. <laughs> well, indeed. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about one thing about the way you made the film. You mentioned this earlier, but I mean, it's interesting that you restage some of these things that you have audio for um, quite cleverly with the ones that have middle-aged chaplain in them. You found someone who looks like him from behind, but you don't go to the face so that, you know, we kind of preserve knowing that, yeah, we're not really seeing chaplain, but we're bringing this moment that we have audio to life. Uh, with Effie Wisdom, I wasn't sure if, the actress who appears as her was was actually acting the script at that point, or that was the real recording. Um, but yeah, talk about why you chose to go, do it that way. Yes, well, um, it's an interesting question. We we really toyed with it for a long time about um, how much we should see of the actors playing Chaplin because there's there's two. There's one in the 1966 interview with with Life magazine, and there's one in the 1947 press conference, um, and we, I think our, the main part of our decision was that um, that we had these wonderful photographs from both occasions. You know, Roddy McDowell had taken hundreds of pictures um, whilst this interview was going on in Switzerland in 1966. Um, and so we really wanted to feature Chaplin's, you know, real face. We really wanted to feature the real, <laughs> the real Chaplin um, on screen through those photographs and really major on those. Um, and so in, in that sense, it made sense to um, for the dramatizations to be like more, you know, we see him in fragments and we see him this shoulder and, um, and the back of his head and that sort of thing, so that we could intercut them with the photographs. Um, I think on another sort of maybe more conceptual level, we were also interested in how um, this idea that maybe you can't look at him directly, or certainly not in our <laughs> filmic um, portrayal of him, um, but perhaps I'm straying a bit into being a little bit pretentious there. Um, with Essie, um, it is it is her um, it is her real voice in that in that recording. Although I agree, at that point in the film, it's probably ambiguous as to quite what you're hearing. Um, and then we because we only have one photograph of her, um, actually maybe maybe two. We we just used one, which is um, was taken on the doorstep just after the interview took place. Um, so in that sense, you know, we wanted to be more immersively in the room and hearing her voice. And I guess in terms of that question of like seeing Chaplin directly, because as you say, you're, you're kind of hearing his childhood friend dis describe um, knowing him as a boy. It felt it felt like we we had greater permission, I think, to to um, imagine and to empathise with Effie. I think um, in that sense. So we we wanted to see her face and to connect with her via our act, actor um, Anne Rosenfeld, who played um, who played Effie so brilliantly. And so I was lip syncing along, yeah, to that to that recording. Anne is um works in sound actually and she oh. records <laughs> audiobooks and um, as well as being an actor. So um she's I think well trained in kind of latching on to uh, to audio recordings and she spent a long time kind of learning, you know, every syllable and every um beat of that. And then on set we had um we played the original audio with, with tips introducing it, um and then to cue her in, which we then removed. Um so it was a, a strange process. And, and in terms of then doing that with the Chaplin interview, it was kind of eerie for us to be, um, be you know, playing Chaplin's own voice back 
in the room that he recorded those words. Right. <laughs> um, like a sort of, <laughs> so there was some kind of seance going on, I think. And, and, and actually, we begin the film with an image of a seance. And at times, making it, you know, it felt a bit like that. You, know, you have to find these sort of methods and attempts to sort of try and summon him um, because you, we can't speak to him directly. You know, we have to do it through these electrical uh, bits and bobs and recordings that we found. And uh, yeah, so the whole process was... Um, was an interesting one and a challenging one, I think, in terms of making a documentary without a living subject. Yeah, the other one, the other interview that's that's quite moving, uh, I thought, was seeing Lita Gray, you know, who had long before been his his wife, his you know, one of his child brides, and was uh, ultimately, you know, half of a very notorious divorce case. You know, seeing her in the '60s on the Merv Griffin show, you know, it's—I mean, she she kind of has it together, but she's obviously damaged by her experience with him. I mean, you know, it it brings that side of him to life in a way that I think other versions of his life have not done before. Well, thank you. Yes, and Lita's um, Lita's account of her marriage to Chaplin and, the, and their divorce. Um, we knew instantly that the film had to delve into into that part of his life, and and, and we we feel, you know, very grateful that Lita was 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 on tape talking about it because I think of, of Chaplin's four wives, she's the only um, person who was on tape um, in any detail talking about her life with Chaplin. And as you say, it's clear the sort of um, it's clear the the toll it took on her. You know, she talked about how. Um, we don't we don't use it in the film, but she talked about how it took her a very good doctor um, to get well after her marriage with Chaplin, and she's talked about her troubles with alcohol after as well. Um, and as you say, I think what you really get from her interview with on the Merv Griffin show um, and and in the other interviews is this sense of how hard it, how hard uh, she tried to get her account of um, of her relationship with Chaplin out. Um, she talked about how people didn't believe her account because um, because they idolized Chaplin. Um, she's talked about how that people couldn't reconcile what she was saying with this idea of him from the, the character that they had that they knew and loved, you know, on the screen. Um, and and those sorts of statements had real resonances for us with um, you know with some of the conversations today that are going on. Um, and um, it felt really important to us to put Lisa's voice front and center um it's uncomfortable listening to us to hear some of the things that she describes you know she talks about how on her honeymoon Chaplin suggested that she should um she should throw herself off a train i mean this is you know terrifying and, and huge stuff um and um and yeah and I, I i think you know we wanted to give Chaplin the right of reply but Chaplin doesn't um mention later in her autobiography besides one or two lines that he gives her where he doesn't mention her by name and in the um, and in the Chaplin interview with Richard Merriman, he's very clear of that there will be things that are off limits. He says he doesn't want this to become a confessional box. You know, he's not going to go into personal things. So Chaplin is kind of there's a certain power I think in Chaplin's silence, um, and you feel as well that perhaps uh, with Mildred Harris and Paulette Goddard and Una that we would have liked to have known more about what they had to say. You know, Una Chaplin destroyed a lot of her writing um, from her relationship with him. Um, so it's hard to access uh, some of the other stories, which, um, which I think, 
you know, we'd love to hear more about in terms of Chaplin's life. And we wanted to allude to that in the film and to, to talk about the absences and the gaps and the things that we, we you know, that we can't, that we, that we don't have access to for, for whatever reason, for, for, for what's not on tape. Um, but yeah, Lita's story is, um, is so important um, in terms of, you know, building a more complex picture. And I think um, we, we, we're asked a lot about, you know, whether audiences about watching children's films in light of these things and um i think audiences are sophisticated enough to hold these different ideas about chaplin in their heads um and we hope that the film is is as as complex as it needs to be in terms of what was i think a very complex life um but is uh, such a beautiful and extraordinary body of work in terms of uh, in terms of his films um but yes it's a complex portrait and so we didn't want to simplify it um, or make a hagiography um of him um, and um, and yeah, it's been a, a real adventure to, to make the film over the last few years. Um, we feel very lucky to have been uh, to have been able to do it and to take such a deep dive into the subject. Um, and we hope that it has something for everyone in terms of uh, people who know his life and people who've never really seen his films. The Real Charlie Chaplin is playing now on Showtime. You can watch the trailer in the show post at nitrateville.com. If you follow what's shown at festivals like Pordenone or Bologna, you might hear that there's a full slate of films representing the surviving work of a filmmaker. And then, if you're lucky, the best of those films, one or two at most, might eventually be made available on home video. Then there's Lobster Films' restoration of the complete surviving silent work of one of the most important French directors of the vintage era, Julien de Vivier, who gave us Pepe de Moco and Panique in the sound era. Cinema of Discovery, Julien de Vivier in the 1920s, is a five-disc, nine-feature set from Lobster and Flicker Alley, giving us, for considerably less than a plane ticket to Italy, an in-depth immersion in the work of a great filmmaker on the rise in the 1920s. I spoke with Serge Bromberg of Lobster from Paris about bringing back the silent career of Julien de Vivier. I was thinking first, maybe just to give people a sense of where he stood in the French film industry, you know, who would you compare him to of familiar American directors? I mean, I was thinking maybe someone like William Wyler or Fred Zinnemann, who could work in a lot of genres. Yeah, yeah well, Zinnemann was later. Uh, but yes, William, William Wyler is one of those uh, uh, possibilities, although Wyler was specializing in super productions. He did not only do that, right. but uh, uh, I would think of a more independent uh, director who would go from silent to sound like uh, King Vidor. Okay. Maybe, uh, although a bit more uh, uh, French. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's hard to describe. Uh, it's like comparing Duvivier uh, with somebody else. It's like comparing, uh, would you think Beethoven uh, would right. be compared to? Well, you, you don't. Uh, but he's certainly a director of the same magnitude as uh, Clouseau or René Clair. Uh, he's like one of those, this handful of directors who not only uh, was big in the years of silent, but made it super big and was uh, super creative and successful, not all the time, but uh, many times uh, in the sound uh, period. So uh, yeah, he was one of, one of our 10 best directors ever without okay. a doubt. And his silent work really was, hasn't been that well known? Well, the thing is only two films uh, did uh, survive or let's say was shown uh, so far uh, one of them was uh, Le Mariage de Mademoiselle Belmont that was restored by the Cinémathèque Française from their elements in the uh, I think 80s uh, and uh, Au Bonheur des Dames uh, which Ladies Paradise which we uh, accompanied uh, by buying the rights and uh, showing the Cinémathèque Française restoration also about 15 years ago. Uh, so those were the only two films that were, let's say, not widely available, but more or less available. Right. Uh, but the matter of our project is not a problem of availability. Those films did survive in mediocre condition and no one had ever focused uh, energy uh, to their preservation. And what I mean preservation is like, you know, 4K scanning and going all the way to film out in 35 millimeter, which means big money, yeah. uh, and, uh, and also scoring. So uh, two of the films uh, previously had scores. One of them was, um, had scores that we could use. One of them was uh, The Mystery of the Eiffel Tower, for which only one print survives uh, in the iFilm Institute in Holland. And they were kind enough to allow us to use that track uh, that they had recorded for a confidential DVD release about 20 years ago, I think 2007. And uh, the um, uh, Mariage de Mademoiselle Belmont that was uh, shown on the Piazza Maggiore in Bologna uh, in the early 90s. And the music by Marco Dalpane was uh, recorded by Bologna. And because the print in principle was the same one, uh, so we made a deal with Bologna and Marco Dalpane to reuse his score. Uh, the only problem, and maybe we'll mention it later, is that for Mariage of Mademoiselle Belmont's, uh, we had a strange feeling that there was a little chunk missing. And, uh, and fortunately, or someone would say unfortunately, but I regard it as fortunately, we found that lost clip in Belgium in 9.5. It's about four or five minutes. And of course, there's no music re recorded on the Piaggia Maggiore for that little fragment. So we had to go back to this with Marco and uh, he found a way of uh, reusing and patching so that it doesn't 
I mean, we're not missing music at that moment. Right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I could tell when the, the piece, you know, the, the chunk came up because you can see that it goes to something coming from 9.5, but the music was seamless. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. But that's Marco said, well, you know, I, I think I can make it. And it's Marco who, who actually did the work. I mean, we would never toy with Marco Talpana's music. So uh, we were glad that he agreed to do the work, understanding the situation. Yeah, now, I mean, you didn't, uh, you weren't ever tempted to make something run a couple of frames faster a second or anything like that. You felt the timing was good on everything so you could use the existing music. Well, you know, that's very simple. Uh, the, the, there was only one print. Right. So we exactly used the same material. So the music matches matched all the way, yeah. except for this. <laughs> and here we had four minutes missing. So four minutes, you don't toy with going faster or going slower. Right, right. <laughs> four minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about, yeah, I mean, where the, the sources for all these things, because the booklet talks about, I mean, there are things in 9.5 millimeter, which I learned is called Pathé Baby, yeah. and things in 17.5 millimeter, which I never oh. had heard of, which is Pathé Pearl. So, yeah. but it makes perfect sense because it's 35 cut in half. So, uh, yes. Uh, yes, but actually, uh, it is not. A, it doesn't at all look like thirty-five cut in halves. It more look looks like uh, sixteen millimeter. Sure. Uh, and but when you when you put it in a sixteen mil projector, of course, it doesn't work because it's too wide. Yeah. But that's yeah. the general uh, aspect. Is more like one f- sprocket per frame, and uh, yeah. Those, those gauges are very have very interesting stories, by the way. Well, yeah, tell tell the I th- thought the one about seventeen point five millimeters was fascinating. Tell about that and why it well, came out of fashion. Seventeen point five is called Pathé Rural because it was designed by Pathé to go in the uh, well, let's say rural uh, parts of the country. Uh, so the film had to be light, uh, easily carryable. Uh, but also um, non-flammable. It was diacetate. It was not nitrate. And uh, it started in the early uh, 20s, uh, I think 1922. At the same time, 16 mil appeared. Uh, And it was really designed to go in churches or uh, city halls or, you know, let's say local uh, theaters uh, that did not deserve uh, 35 mil where uh-huh. there was no ability to show 35 mil uh, uh, projection um, it, just like 16 mil that had two sprockets and then on, on each side and then only one when sound arrived um, 17.5 followed the same route and uh, there were 17.5 sound films uh, until the early uh, 40s and what happened is that the um, when the Germans to control of France, uh, they decided in, I think it was 1941, to seize all the 17.5 projectors and change the uh, rollers and the, the gate so that in the end, when the, the Pathé Rural projectors would go back to their owner, it would only be able to show 16 mil film. Uh, so that was the end of, of French films uh, at, at least Pathé Rural, it was easier to control for the German uh, power. And of course, that killed a, a system that was in any way 
slightly going away already. Yeah. 60 mil had picked up. Even yeah, in the book you say that they uh, it was used yes, the 17.5 was used for propaganda by the French. Um, no, the, no, no, the, the 16 this yes, well, let's say it was not really propaganda, it was the newsreel. Oh, okay. And and they didn't want any newsreels to be uh, okay, shown that makes sense. by the rural system. There was no real propaganda in 1941. You know, it was what we called la drôle de guerre, the yeah. funny war, which means there was no real war. It was really bizarre. All right, so you've you've restored all these things from these different materials. A lot of, you know, some some odd gauges like we talked about, and then just also you know, films turning up in, in the odd places. There's some from Czechoslovakia, some from Gulf Female Fund in, in Moscow. Um, yeah, tell me about the process of finding well, all these things. Well, you know, finding material all over the world and patching it together to get the films back seemed to be our middle name. Huh? Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and I must, first of all, I must say that the best way of restoring a film is to find a good negative in good conditions sure uh, which is not always the case because we will mention poil de carotte carrot head here but okay before we get to that uh, uh, what happened is that uh in 2008 okay so that's but it's the end of a uh 15 year uh trial lawsuit the story is that the son of dubivier uh, called Christian Duvivier, who was a dentist, his only son, uh, was approached by a producer in France that claimed to be the owner of all Duvivier's films uh, and that he needed to clear the author's rights, which is something that needs to be done in France. Right. So uh, Christian Duvivier didn't know, uh, but in 1993, he signed a contract uh, like clearing the rights for this man who had claimed he was the producer of the films. But actually, very fast, Christian Duvivier found out that he was, the guy was not the producer at all. And he, he pretended to be the producer just to get his signature and clear the author's rights. Right. Uh, and uh, of course, once the author's rights were cleared, that was the end of the trouble. I mean, the guy controlled the films. So uh, Duvivier uh, started a lawsuit against that man saying, uh, well, you pretended you were the producer. So in a way, you stole my signature. And, uh, and I don't want to sign with you now that I know you've lied in the first place. So I want the justice to cancel my signature. It lasts 15 years. Yeah. And in 2008, finally, the justice decided that, yes, the man had cheated. He had pretended falsely that he was a producer and that Duvivier could get his rights back and that the films actually were in limbo. That doesn't mean they were in public domain, but they, there was the owner, the company that produced them had disappeared. So basically, the only one who could use those films was Christian Duvivier himself. And uh, because I knew him and, and I helped him in this matter, uh, Christian came to me and said, you know, the, the only problem is that uh, uh, all those films are silent. Yes. And uh, they take a lot of restoration. Yes. And uh, they also need scoring. Yes. And they will never make a dime. Yes. 
<laughs> so that's that's the case for lobster films. I say, well, thank you, thank you for your trust, uh, and, and so on. But nevertheless, we liked each other very much. So uh, we decided he was not that young, eh? so we decided to uh, start uh, that project where we would restore every single film, uh, a silent film of Julien Duvivier, except three that had already been copied by the Cinémathèque Française and that are a, a bit out of our scope. Uh, so all the films produced by Le Film d'Art, which is the name of that company. Uh, and uh, so there were 10 films. Uh, there were nine films plus one. And actually, one of the films is totally lost, called oh. La Constantin. So that one, of course, we could not restore because it's not there anymore. But so we started and we started by, as usual, uh, calling all the archives, explaining that we were going deep into the restoration, doing the best from the best material, you know, 4K scanning, entire restoration, music scoring, orchestra recording, blah, 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 an enormous uh, project. We got some funding from the National Center of Cinema uh, for all, almost all the films. So they have been absolutely stunning. They paid for about half of the money of the restoration. Uh, and for the rest, I mean, we paid with our own money, uh, uh, including the music that we paid entirely. Uh, and um, when we had to commission it and record it. So uh, we knew it would be a long process. Uh, we we also know very well that you start a film, you restore it, and then you realize there's better material, so you have to do it all over again. So we're familiar with this, uh, which means that uh, we never start before we're sure we have the best material, which also explains that sometimes people would have said, well, you, you've been working on that film for five years. Yes, but for five years, we've been waiting to check that the material in Australia or in uh, uh, um, uh, Argentina is not better than the one we have. Uh, and uh, because we don't want to work for nothing. Right. Um, nevertheless, there's one film for which we have worked for nothing, uh, which is Carrot Head. So Carrot Head uh, is a film that had been available on DVD already from our former restoration from the camera negative that came from the Cinémathèque Française. The camera negative had German uh, intertitles that we, of course, changed to French uh, when we did the release. And uh, that DVD was released through Arte uh, and also in, um, in America through a company called Facets, oh, okay. I think. Yeah. Uh, Not that far from my uh, house, actually. Yeah. And uh, but I didn't know them. It went through Arte. I mean, the deal went through Arte. I didn't want this to happen. They made the sale anyway. Okay, no, I won't go into this. Anyway, uh, we took the same material, we scanned it in 4K, we started restoring, and then we knew that w w there were two wrecks of of terribly terribly damaged prints, uh, very incomplete, both of them, uh, in Toulouse. And in the south of France, in the Département de Charente, which is another region, uh, both prints were uh, at the, in the French archives at the CNC. So we asked permission to have access because those were the two only two elements where there were tints. So, of course, tinting was a very important matter. And when the two prints arrived, now with the, with the new technologies, you can scan very damaged prints. 
with not very good results, but at least without any danger to harm the print sure. itself. You know, there's no more sprockets, there's no more all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so we scanned the two prints and realized very, very quickly that they were from the A negative, when the negative that we found at the Cinémathèque Française was the B negative, very censored, very cut down and very everything. And it was obvious that uh, re-releasing the film from the B negative would make very little sense. Although we had already produced a soundtrack that was very elaborate for a, a, the Octuor de France, which we use very often, the music was beautiful, but the image was not a good one. So uh, we scanned both and we redid the restoration in a much more elaborate way because, you know, in the first option, we were restoring a camera negative that had not been used so much. In the other case, we were restoring two wrecks of uh, wrecks <laughs> of, of, of silent prints. So it was much, much more uh, work. But in, and, and for some very little parts, we had to use the camera negative, uh, foreign negative, because the, 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 those scenes did not survive in none of the two uh, A negative prints. But in the end, we have a, the film probably as complete and as close to the original cut as anyone saw it at the time. And it's a world premiere in a way that uh, that version uh, was never released. Yeah, uh, it's the same for many of those films, you know. Um, yeah, now, now, uh, Paul de Carotte, uh, which I'm probably butchering in the French there, but uh, no, no, that, it's very good. Okay, <laughs> um, I mean, that's an important film for Duvivier. I mean, it's important not only because it's the earliest one on this set, so you really see you know, kind of his starting point there, but he remade it early in the sound era. Um, which has been out on the U.S. from Criterion in a set about Duvivier in the 30s. Um, So, obviously, something... You know, know, he even tried to do a third version with color with Jean Gabin in the 50s, which never happened, but he tried. There is a version from the 70s. I know this because it was going to be on TCM. I mean, I just saw the name, and I'm all excited. And then suddenly, I see bright... 70s color it's like eh, well this isn't either the caratops that i wanted to see but uh, <laughs> um well, any- the, the, the silent duvivier i believe is stronger than the sound duvivier although there are you know people like the rolling stones and the beatles right <laughs> i'm more on the side of the silent one uh obviously it's a major film uh and obviously it deals with the the story of duvivier with his father uh who was like this very always silent and never spoke really to his uh to his uh, children to his child actually his only child so and and i've discussed with the uh, christian duvivier's uh son who tells me how he was and it was exactly like this uh he never never spoke never and he did not keep much about the career of his uh, father yeah. that's a bizarre thing yeah. Oh, by the way, on the 6th of December, I wrote a message to Christian saying, Christian, this is it. I just uh, received the first uh, French set of, uh, of the... In France, it's a DVD and Blu-ray set. Okay. Uh, in America, it's Blu-ray only. And 
I received the set and I'm going to send it to you and uh, we will celebrate because that's the end of 15 years of struggle. And I did not receive an answer. And I found out why. The very same day on the 6th of December, he had a heart problem, was sent to the hospital. And because of COVID, a lot of reanimation beds were uh, right. taken and he was 95. So they decided not to put in put him in rehab, and he passed away the same day. Uh, well, that's sad. Okay. That's sad, but he knew it was happening. Right. <laughs> and his son, his son was very nice to tell me that he was happy that this was happening. And uh, that's the end of a, you know, he, he couldn't wait to hold it in his hands. But I think where he is now, he must see us and he must be very proud. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is this is a, a book that's I think kind of important to the French. Speaking for the French here, uh, and you know, like I say, it's it's been in multiple versions over the years. Two from Duvivier. Um, I understand that Ethel Barrymore actually played the kid on stage in America at one point. Um, so you know, an interesting story. I mean, it really is kind of a story that you don't expect from the 1920s in that it's kind of about, it's about a child being neglected by his parents and to some extent abused by the mother. And, you know, none of the sentimentality that you expect with, you know, kid stories, you know, I was thinking of things like Penrod and Sam that we saw from Pordenone last year. I mean, it's nothing like that. It's, it's, you know, for, for the main character being a child who has, you know, sort of limited, emotional scope, you know, you really get a sense of the pain that he lives with, you know, what seems like it should be an idyllic lifestyle in, in farm country in France is nothing like that for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, really just a beautiful film in both of those. It, 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 it's absolutely beautiful. It's also very rough, very dry. You, you understand why there were so many scenes censored uh, in the foreign version, because there are scenes with prostitutes, there are scenes of, of I mean, suicide and, and those terrible, terrible things that are filmed in the most uh, realistic or uh, and beautiful way at the same time. Uh, for me, it's a masterpiece because it's the most sincere version where you have everything, you don't hide, and and uh, it's. It really, it, 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 for a first film, uh, it's really one of the strongest. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so then, you know, I mean, looking at the films in the set, he kind of wanders around different genres before we really get to anything that's as good as Paul de Corot again. Um, oddly, I thought it was interesting for someone who's, has a fairly dark outlook in his sound films. I mean, something like Panique is quite bleak and, you know, reminds you of Clouseau in that way. Um, He went through a phase of being essentially a religious filmmaker. And I wondered if that came out of the, uh, the, what the studio was interested in, but it also appears that he was, you know, had. No, no, that was him. That was him. He He had a, he had for a very short time, he had faith and and wanted to film uh religious beauty and 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 people and hope and and every and prayers and happiness in religion it didn't last long 
actually uh, it lasts for uh, two films uh, and the, 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 there's a film called The Agony of Jerusalem, right. which can be regarded as a very conservative film and very religious film where basically a man finds uh, uh, belief and happiness in religion and I don't want to spoil the film, but basically religion is the issue. And the film was shot, was shot in Palestine. And Duvivier tells how he expected that trip to Palestine uh, to be uh, the highlight of his life because he would be on the ground where the, the story happened. And he clearly tells that when he arrived, he went out of the, of the train on the station and suddenly, before shooting the Palestinian scenes of his films, realized that he did not believe at all anymore. <laughs> and he was totally out of this. And he spent the rest of his career filming religion, or, or not religion, I mean, in Panic or in Pepe uh, Moko uh, uh, or, or Algiers, which is a French version of Algiers. Sure. Uh, it, there is no such thing as religion. But uh, in films like The Divine Cruise, I think that's the way it tells in English, yeah. uh, The Divine Cruise, you have religion, a religion aspect, but that's just because these people that he's filming had only religion as a safety belt. That's the only thing that could give them hope. But he's not filming religion as a, to be, uh, um, how do you say, proselytism. Right. That's not at all what he wanted to do. So only for two films did he do that. And when he filmed The Miraculous Life of Thérèse Martin, uh, he films religion and the religious powers thought that it was a film dedicated to religion, but it's actually a film that is focusing on violence in religion. And it's a very, very anti-religion film uh, when you read it carefully. Well, that's what I, I was curious about that because, I mean, it really is successful at sort of giving a contemplative uh, view of, you know, St. Therese of the Little Flowers, uh, her, her life as a, as a cloistered nun uh, dedicated to service. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it that if you don't have that viewpoint, you're looking at it going, man, that's a miserable life. Why would you choose that personally? That's exactly what he's showing. Yeah. I mean, the nature and the miserable life. You know, I think the film was, was distributed in America with a terrible soundtrack called, uh, under the name, The Little Flower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and we found two prints of that. Uh, and the, the, the prints and the, the versions was dreadful and terrible. And that film was regarded as lost besides that uh, uh, version. And we were very fortunate, I must say, to find two of the films in the Gosfilmofond in Russia. Uh, and it took a lot of time, as you can imagine, to convince them to release their material, give, them, give us access to the best uh, material possible. Uh, on both films, there was a 35 millimeter print from struck from the uh, dupe negative, the Russian dupe negative uh, in the French National Center of Cinema. And they said, well, why don't you use our prints? I said, well, when you invest that amount of time and money, you would not expect to start with a copy of a, a dupe neg if you can have access to the dupe neg. Sure. And it took about three years to have access to the dupe neg. 
So it was a, a, a very, very complicated matter. And, and for this, these two films, the scanning took place in Russia. Uh, they didn't want to send the, the dupe negatives, so they made the, the scanning themselves very well, I must say. But um, that's one of the cases. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, it made me think of, you know, what I've read about Carl Dreyer, that, you know, he's seen as someone who made these films about religion, but they did not represent his particular feelings. It was more about exploring something that was at the, you know, extremity of human experience, I guess. Yeah. Something like when, that. when you see Joan of Arc, Dreyer, uh, it's, it's, of course, a fascinating and beautiful film, but uh, there is so much cruelty uh, in uh, uh, Little Flower of, of in, in Therese, uh, that I think it's it's a film that is equally strong and 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 visually beautiful. Yeah. Uh, uh, to say to say the least, which sets a standard. You know, you can compare Dreyer and Duvivier uh, and playing in the same league. Yeah, I thought of uh, Passion of Joan of Arc a few times because, and particularly in. Uh, uh, the Divine Voyage. He's he uses interesting close-ups. You know, close-ups of people with craggy faces so well. I mean, it's amazing, yeah. beautiful. I mean, uh, you have it's a mix of Dreyer and Soviet cinema. Yeah, it's very <laughs> I mean, the, the pulse, the strength of those faces, those eyes. It's it's un- unbelievable for me. The Divine Cruise is the discovery of of the set. Uh, I know people tell me I'm monomaniac, uh, <laughs> but um, the, the film will play uh, in January in the Saven Project uh, screenings at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, they show very little films and they say, well, Divine Cruise, we cannot not show that film. It's yeah. just uh, beyond belief. Uh, that film was uh, released in a very shortened version uh, no print of that shortened version did survive, but later on, it was even cut down more, removing all the political issues uh, in 9.5, again, what we call Pathé Babies. Yeah. Uh, Pathé Baby. And, and because those prints were shown in families, in homes, they didn't want, the, the, the Maison Pathé, the company, didn't want to put like political uh, speech in the films that would be shown to kids or uh, to people who would not agree with that political point of view, which is rather unusual for Duvivier, by the way, but nevertheless. Um, so they decided to do another cut down to 35 to 40 minutes. So very, very cut down. I mean, very few was remaining. And we were fortunate that uh, Pathé uh, actually kept the 35 millimeter print that they chopped you know, wow. they removed all the stuff. And that 35 minutes that they chopped and that they used to produce the uh, printing negative in 9.5 does survive. Uh. So we had 35 millimeter tinted on those shots. So we went all over the world and we found fragments here and there. And, um, and in, at the end of the day, we had uh, 85 minutes and we did the scoring. Antonio Coppola made a beautiful score. And um, 10 days before the recording, uh, we get a call from the Cinematheque Francaise uh, 
saying, Serge, uh, we have a film here that seems to be mislabeled. It looks like Duvivier. Uh, can you come over and give a look? <laughs> and I, I went to the Cinematheque and on the flatbed, uh, we uh, put that, that reel and believe it, it was an entire reel that did not survive anywhere else. 10 minutes. So I called Antonio and said, Antonio, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I'd rather it happened before the recording sure. <laughs> than after. You have 10 days to do the scoring of 10 more minutes. And, and he, of course, he shouted because that's Antonio. Uh, and then he said, well, Serge, it's impossible to work with you. You keep finding more stuff. And once we finish, we've not finished. Uh, but then at the end of the day, the film is complete. It's beautiful. His music is beautiful. And, 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 and of course, he said, you're right, that that was the only thing to do. Um, I must also say that uh, when we started the restoration of the film uh, and we show it to uh, uh, the Octuor de France, the orchestra, they said, oh, we want to do it. And we want to do it in, in live concerts and we want to tour with it and so on. So the film was shown in live concert from a not restored version one year ago in August. And the result was fantastic. You know, the image was not perfect, really not, but it was complete. The music was there, it was in sync. And uh, when they all came back from Brittany because the concert took place in Brittany, we had the dinner with uh, François Méran who was the manager of the Octuor de France. And unfortunately, François Méran passed away uh, a few months later. And that's why the film is, the restoration is dedicated to François Méran, who has been one of our guardian angels and, uh, and helped a lot. You know, looking at the other ones, it's interesting. There, there are three that I think come from plays or maybe play by way of a novel in the case of uh, Mother Hummingbird. I'm not sure. Was Maman Colibri. You know, so he was he was working with uh, stage material and trying to make it in, you know, more cinematic. Well, those works are not the most interesting. Uh, uh, it shows a lot of skill, but that's they were less, much less personal. So uh, you know, we included those films, and they have beautiful moments, but they 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 are more like melodramas or uh, things that are more conventional. Um, there's a very strange attempt of a, to make a spoof of a serial called The Mystery of the Eiffel Tower. And the entire film is a spoof. So it's not filmed seriously. Uh, a spoof of serials. But the problem is that serials were not filmed seriously in the first place. Right. <laughs> so how do you make a spoof of a spoof? And at some point you realize, well, is he making fun of a serials? Or is he trying to make his own serial? Or what are we exactly watching? And uh, th 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 that film is fairly unique. Uh, I love it very much. Uh, and, uh, you know, with the cliffhangers and, and everything, but very French, of course. And the last scene on the Eiffel Tower is literally jaw-dropping. Yeah, but, that, that uh, was amazing and terrifying. Yeah. So. And terrifying at the same time. But um, uh, I like that film because it's so imperfect. Uh -huh. But there is so much enthusiasm and so much youth and so much ideas uh, in it that, uh, I mean, there are, there's a scene where he's lost and you have 
corridors and doors opening everywhere. Right. Well, I can't describe it, but such an idea. I wonder why no one has done it since then. <laughs> Maybe someone has, but I've never seen that. And, you know uh, what it reminded me of was the uh, the Fleischer cartoon Bimbo's Initiation. Yeah, where, absolutely. You know yeah. these. You know the kind of you know pulp surrealism of something like that, where they're you know guys in in uh, hooded costumes like penitentes. Uh, you know, skulking about some sort of dungeon-like place or whatever it is. I mean, yeah, but the but the Flash brothers could do this because they were shorts and they were so imaginative in the first place. He was speaking of a more than two two hour and thirty minutes uh, right. feature film. So you know, surrealism is a dangerous uh, good to handle <laughs> when you're doing a film. Yeah. Uh, but it, with the yeah, it works. It it works amazingly well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the scenes of people climbing around the Eiffel Tower and chasing each other, and they're really up there. This isn't, you know, this isn't like Harold Lloyd on, the, on a, a platform on top of a building and seeing the city behind it. They're really, you know, yeah. and that, that's, I mean, I think Duvivier has a bit of a reputation as a terror on the set. And, uh, you know, nothing's more terrifying than, see that up there? You're going to climb that, and you're going <laughs> to chase him. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what he did, I guess. Uh, probably with professional climbers. Uh, but uh, yes, I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to be in their place, huh? Yeah, no, yeah. definitely not. No. Um, but it's interesting, you know, he, you see, even in the, the lesser films on the set, and I think the ones we've just been talking about would qualify as the lesser ones. I mean, you see his technique developing. He's, you know, he shoots a lot from above, uh, which I don't know, it has kind of a, you know, it's like the director's analytical mind. When you start seeing action from above, it's like watching mice run around a maze or something. And Well, you can see a film from Duvivier right away by the way he films, where he puts the camera, where he, uh, how it moves, how he directs the actress, how he does super impressions and things like this. I mean, he was really a virtuoso. Uh, uh, he, he, it's, it's really unique. It's, it's, they are beautiful objects, even for the lesser films, as you say. Uh, the films were absolutely visually beautiful. So, uh, and even in their new restoration, it's even, it's even bigger. But, uh, and of course, Ladies Paradise is the ultimate of, uh, ultimate right. of them. We're in 1930, and he has all the skill, he has all the crew he wants, he has all the money he wants. Of course, the film is going to bomb for reasons that we may explain. But Ladies Paradise is, of course, he's one of the masterpieces of, of, uh, of the genre, uh, and certainly one of the most entertaining and, and visually beautiful films of the silent era. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that one because that is—it's the last film on the set. It's 1930 for a silent, which is getting pretty late, um, and it's based on Zola. So already, it starts with a higher level of material than a lot of these other things, like the melodramas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also, I mean, it's just astounding to watch. It's like a a, a Metropolis filmed on location when you see them inside the the. Uh, um, I wish about Gallery Lafayette department. Gallery Lafayette, yeah, yeah, um, you know, which is still there if anyone wants to visit the set of that movie. Um, yeah. But you know, I mean, directing hundreds of extras, 
inside an actual department store. I mean, it's pretty yeah. astounding just to see on that level. This entire film is astounding. I mean, the scenes in the in the stores, the way he, the cutting, the visuals, Paris being destroyed, uh, uh, the uh, acting is absolute. The ideas you have a you have a, a scene where uh, you have a, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, uh, idea. You have on one hand buildings being torn down, so you see the walls falling. And on the other hand, you see the window and, and action happening in a window. And at the moment, the wall, which is off screen, is falling. You have the camera trembling. So, uh, we, of course, it's not, the, but the, 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 the noise right. of that wall that is falling and that you don't see is shown by slightly shifting and moving the camera. That's an idea that's so imaginative. Uh, yeah, plus you have scenes in uh, Lille Adam, which is a, a place where uh, the Parisians could go. It's like 50 kilometers from Paris. They could go and bath in the Seine. So they would have this, those swimming suits of the 30s and do con- uh, swimming contests and everything, and, and which still exists and looks exactly the same way, <laughs> uh, except the, the, the swimming suits don't. Right. But uh, the place, <laughs> yes. uh, and, and it is filmed in, 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 in the most art deco way i i i love that scene and um gabriel thibaudot uh, has uh, composed a score that is in my eye one of the be- of the best scores he ever uh, uh composed uh with a very very interesting idea that you probably noticed of course uh which is at the moment you have uh dita paolo uh, the actress, of course, of La Talente and the Grand Illusion and so on, and oh, Mademoiselle Doctor. Uh, Dita Paolo is uh, a, a young employee in the department store, and she finds herself facing the owner of the store. And uh, they have a disagreement, and she slams his face. And, and you can clearly see her watching the man and say, oh, sorry, I... I didn't do it on purpose. And uh, at that moment, the music stops and it, there's a singer, there's a, there's a, a cantata in the entire score. And at that moment, the music stop, stops and the cantata speaks with the, and gives a voice to Dita Paolo. So it's like the, that film all of a sudden becomes sound for maybe 10 seconds, but it's so magic. Absolutely yeah. magic, and when when you when you think that actually the film the, the the film of course bombed because when it was released sound was had already arrived they attempted to add sound effects and and the lousy music to that that silent film which of course was even worse and uh, so it's a blink of the eye to that attempt of uh, right. <laughs> uh, putting sound on the silent film yeah doing it with more sensitivity because. Mm-hmm. You know, you know better how that works by now, as oh, opposed yeah. to people scrambling to add sound. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it kind of made me think of Lonesome, which is another film that uh, is mostly silent, has a little but bit Lonesome of sound. Is great, yeah, great film, Lonesome, but Lonesome it would is be a beautiful Fayos film. And and I don't know if you saw the uh, uh, Alloy Orchestra version of no, the film, where they uh, play uh, the silent version. 
silent. And the two or three scenes where there is dialogue, because we're in the very early stage of sound film, they keep, they retain the dialogue. <gasps> wow. <laughs> wow. Just that. <laughs> All right. So uh, Ladies Paradise is his last uh, silent film. And somewhat unusually for French film. I mean, he pretty much had made all these films for the same studio, hadn't he? Um, yeah, he joined the studio for a few months, only for uh, uh, L'Agonie de Jérusalem and uh, uh, Poil de Carotte, Carrot Head, and uh, eventually stayed with the studio for six years. Okay. And uh, it's a bizarre thing that uh, Le Film d'Art, the name of the company, continued to do sound films, but never get got back to Duvivier. I don't exactly know why. I'm sure there is an explanation. But to tell you the truth, the, 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 uh, of course, the man is, is the same genius, but it's two different worlds. And I decided uh, the, the sound world is very known, La Belle Equipe, La Fin du Jour, and so on. I really decided, we really decided to focus on what happened to Duvivier during that period of time, which is seven years, six years, where we don't know what he filmed, we don't know what happened. Uh, the, 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 the man had the reputation of an impossible director, but of very good films that no one could see. So at the end of the day, uh, we, we believed we owed we owed Duvivier and Christian Duvivier his son to give him to give those films the lobster uh, treatment <laughs> and, uh, and it took forever you know we are uh, eight people at the image restoration uh, one people at scanning uh, two two employees supervising the 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 the, the production including me the other one being Eric Lange and um, I mean we've really focused uh, and dedicated month and month of our, of our life uh, going to places watching prints finding out that they were ridiculously useless or it's, but you know if you don't do that uh, it doesn't work you cannot do a serious work right. so we did it yeah um, yeah, does, I mean, what do you think, you know, is going to happen next? You're going to find another piece of one of the films and you wish you could put it in or. Uh, are, you, are you referring, are you referring to the basic rules of film restoration? <laughs> there are a few basic rules. The first rule is that, uh, once, if you find a print in good condition, it's always a bad film. That means no one ever right. wanted to run it on the projector. <laughs> The second rule, of course, is that when you spend 15 years of your life reconstructing a film, the day the answer print comes out of the lab, you realize that your neighbor had the camera negative in good shape on the table. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the third rule is no matter how carefully you check the titles, there will always be a typo, uh, probably in the title, uh, yes. when, when, when it's too late. So yeah. that that goes, you know, those are the three rules. Uh, so yes, we will probably find a few more uh, uh, elements, which is, in a way, would be good news. Uh, we would certainly uh, include them in the restorations. We would probably even make a little fragment of film out and put it with the rest of the film out so that one day in 50, 100, uh, 200, 500 years, uh, people will be able to reconstruct that uh, uh, the, the film incomplete. 
um, yeah, you know, we never stop. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we can't help it. Yeah. Now, you know, something I was thinking about when I got the box was, I mean, I remember, you know, this is when I was a kid really reading about uh, French silent cinema fairly dismissively. You know, and I feel like Napoleon, you know, it, the line was, oh, yeah, it was it was commercial, but not really that interesting. You know, the only French film that anybody talked about was by Dreyer, you know, who's Danish. Uh, Which and was then, French, what I was about to say. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I think, you know, Napoleon probably helped that and, you know, rediscovering Gantz and other things like that. People started maybe understanding that there was more to be found in that decade. No, no, I do not believe that uh, because when Gans made uh, J'accuse in 1918, he was instantly regarded by Griffith as one of the best directors in the world. Uh, When uh, the Russians arrived in France and did the Albatross films, you know, Casanova, uh, they were also very highly regarded uh, as, of course, public interest, but also major masterpieces. Uh, so yes, maybe some people regard those those films as minor and very commercial. Of course, there was commercial cinema as everywhere, uh, you know, like those mediocre films that were produced by the dozen because people needed to see a new film every week uh, in their local theater. But there has always been Marcel Lherbier in Humane, you know, uh, late Matthew Pascal and 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 all those films. Uh, no, no, for me and René Clair. Yeah, Claire. you know the crazy Ray and 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 all these. So the French cinema was a bit more complex because the, most of the good technicians had been off work during World War One, so they had to reconstruct an entire industry since 1918. You know, the end of the war was November 1918, so they all came back in the early days of 1919, and they basically had no theaters. They had many cameramen and directors died in the on the battlefield. Uh, actors, uh, many of them had run away, and and existed in uh, in America. You know, Maurice Tourneur had left to America. He was French. Uh, Albert Capellani also did. So at the end of the day, uh, the French cinema was more uh, uh, classic for some of the films, but for those who dared doing something different, it was very, very unique. I'm speaking like Kirsanov, you know, Menil Montan sure. and all those films that we are, by, so, by the way, currently restoring. Oh, nice. Uh, Oh, yeah. And and Menil Montan has a very interesting story. Uh, we will have the final and complete edit, whereas what you've seen in America is f- far from being the complete work. Uh, we're almost there. It's finished next week. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, um, and uh, so, no, French cinema is really lovable, uh, very interesting, uh, probably much more interesting than German cinema. You know, in Germany, you had, uh, of course, a few, a handful of very interesting directors, Lubitsch, of course, uh, Murnau. Uh, but besides that, I mean, so many commercial films, you know, uh, Robert Wiener uh, did his best films in the late teens and very early 20s. After that, it was more 
uh, standard uh, production. The one I always wonder about is Lupu Pick. That's one of those names that I've seen forever and ever. No one ever revives any of his films. I take it there's a reason for that. So no, no, because Lupu Pick is very interesting. Okay. Uh, and Martin Kerber, former head of the uh, Berlin Cinematheque, sure. is very interesting. Interested in Lupu Pick. Uh, you know, I I may think of it. That's that's <laughs> a good idea. Why yeah. not? Um, why, not? why not yeah but at the moment at the moment at the moment i must say that at lobster we have so many projects on our on our plate that uh we must we must slow down a little bit uh <laughs> we have probably most of you know that we have started that huge project with the academy of motion picture the library of congress the national center of cinema and the cinematic française and of course lobster being operator of all this uh, of restoring the 88 uh, american uh, negatives of georges melies mm. so that's that's uh, a, a an enormous uh, task. Uh, we are also finalizing uh, the restoration of a film that you probably have not heard of called The Robber Symphony. Uh, the director is Friedrich Fair, and Fair was the main actor of Caligari uh, in 1919. Then he became a theater uh, troupe uh, uh, owner and manager in the 20s in Berlin and Vienna. But when the Nazism arrived, they were all Jews, so they ran away with Robert Wiener, with Eugene Schuften and, and many others. And they arrived in London, where they shot that film, uh, The Robber Symphony, uh, in two versions, one in English and one in French, called La Symphonie des Brigands, which, of course, disappeared. I think the negative was destroyed in a bombing in 1943 in London. And the guys ran away to America and he passed away in 1950 uh, as he, he was a uh, waiter in a delicatessen <laughs> on uh, Fairfax Avenue uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, but his film, nevertheless, is absolutely jaw-dropping. It's a unique film. I've never seen anything like this. It's music it's for kids but at the same time it's avant-garde it's it has everything so uh, we decided to restore it with the same great enthusiasm that we showed for like, the divine cruise and, and 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 a few other masterpieces of the kind and that one probably will be ready by the end of uh, 2022 in both versions so that's you love it, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, uh, now I have something to look forward to. Uh, now that I've watched all nine of the Duvivier films, so yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. This this is great. And uh, thanks, Mike. I want I want to say hello to all our friends at Nitrateville. Uh, say that uh, you're doing a great job. Uh, I had, don't have enough time to be on Nitrateville because sure. I'm running all over the place all the time. <laughs> Got other but, stuff to uh, do. You know. Uh, Keep, keep doing the great stuff. I'm, I'll promise you in 2022, I'll just do my best. Nothing <laughs> less. Unfortunately, nothing more, but I'll yeah. do my best.
Cinema of Discovery, Julien de Vivier in the 1920s, is out now from Flickr Alley in the U.S. and from Lobster Films in Europe. Two of the restorations, The Divine Voyage and The Mystery of the Eiffel Tower, will play at the Museum of Modern Art during their Festival of Film Preservation on January 25th and 28th. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, James Spinney and Serge Bromberg, and to Michelle Cohn. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Say pretty girl, peppy boy, peppy boy. Can you kiss a pretty girl, Charming Peppy? Oh, that's silly. <laughs>